Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Hello and welcome to this edition of the podcast. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. K.Y. Amwako. He is one of Africa's foremost development experts. He's spent more than five decades really at the vanguard and at the apex of African development, working alongside leaders and policymakers from across the African continent. He was first at the World Bank, And then he joined the UN in 1995, where he was appointed Executive Secretary of the Economic Commission for Africa. He overhauled that organization over 10 years and helped transform it into the dynamic force that it is today. He then left there to found ASSET, the African Center for Economic Transformation, a think tank that is headquartered in Accra, where he works with many African governments helping them to address some of the underlying structural limitations that constrain economic growth. KY, it's an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. It's been a long time since since I've seen you, certainly, and I think even since we last spoke. But this COVID and this pandemic restricting our travel as it has, has actually meant that I've picked up the phone and spoken to people who otherwise might not have been available because they were inevitably flying. You're one of those individuals, and it's a great pleasure to speak to you today. Uh, thank you very much, Marcus. Uh, it's really a real pleasure, and thanks for the opportunity. And it's been a long time, so it's great to connect. Great. Well, I'm going to crack on and, and, and put some questions to you, if I may. I've heard you speak before about leadership, 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 transformative leadership. We know, you know, you, you tell us that policies matter, of course, and strong and capable institutions, of course, matter too, to implement those policies. But what matters most of all is leadership. And in the absence of effective policies and institutions, good leadership is absolutely critical. I wanted to ask you what your assessment is of the quality of leadership in Africa today. Thanks, Marcus. Yeah, you, you put it very right. Uh, you know, this is based upon the experience I've had uh, in the development sphere in Africa almost over five decades now. What works, what hasn't worked. Africa has been through a lot of challenges. We made some progress through our poverty reduction, went through structural adjustment, talking about SDGs. We're now talking about transformation of African economies. And through all this, you said policy matters, institutions matters a lot. And these are the lessons I have learned. And as you know, I've just published a book called Know the Beginning Well, which talks about how we need to learn from the past to inform the future. And that book describes in the last chapter, I talk about the issue of leadership or the Africa we want. So leadership matters a lot, policies matters, but why leadership? And leadership for what? For economic transformation, for growth, for poverty reduction, transforming our economies so that we add value addition, we export competitively, we have productivity in what we do, and we increase human well-being, per capita income, jobs. That's what is the end goal. So that's why leadership matters a lot. And in the book, I actually make a joke about the quality of leadership and leadership. I say a number of times I meet with colleagues over the years, 
And we say, okay, what is the state of leadership in Africa today, political leadership? And then we say, let's name the 10 leaders that we admire the most, who show the qualities and who are delivering all these fronts. And sometimes, you know, you can't up to five or four or six and you are stuck. So overall leadership has not been in terms of the leadership to transform and achieve the goals of economic development that has been poor. Why do you think that is, KY? Because there's no absence of polity leaders in other spheres of, of the economy specifically. We see great entrepreneurs, fantastic innovators doing amazing things in the world of enterprise, disrupting the medical sector, education. Why the absence of great leaders in the political sphere? Uh, and I spend a lot of time looking at leadership, political leadership. Uh, you're right, leadership at all levels matters. Mm. Uh, private sector, civil society, educators, and that's what will make any nation great. But political leadership is particularly important in poor countries. And that's a history in, you know, you take a look at Asia, countries that have transformed South Korea, Taiwan, all those countries. There was something that sparked political leadership who made a difference. So the key attributes, in my view, are one, you need leadership that has a vision. Vision is important. Where do you want to see your country 10, 15 years ago and articulate the vision? It's very important. That's one attribute. The second attribute is that once you have that vision, I know where you want to take your people and your nation. You have to implement smart policies. Policies matter. So if it's about industrialization, if it's about getting more value addition in your structures, if it's about tourism, whatever, you have to have the smart politics implemented. Third, leaders have to inspire others to greater heights. So you have to be able to surround yourself with people, cabinet, and inspire them so that they can give their best. And lastly, or fourth, you need leaders who govern selflessly. Those are the four attributes that transformative leadership is about. And the literature shows that. And the experience of other parts of the world show that. In the case of Africa, sometimes a leader may not have all these qualities. At least two or three of these things are important. And at times we've had leaders in Africa who have exhibited some of these policies and they've made a difference in their own countries too. So I have to say that too. It's not, it's not all gloom. Uh, we have some very good leaders in top positions and they've made the difference. Great. I'd like to move on to another subject, if I may, that I know is, is dear to you. African integration. I know from reading about you, actually, about how much of an influence Kwame Nkrumah was on you in, in your early years and the sort of type of pan-Africanism that, that he led and espoused. Do you think he would be disappointed about the state of African integration today? Or conversely, do you think he'd be quietly pleased as we are now on the eve of the operationalization of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. Thanks. Yeah, you know, I, I, in my book, Know the Beginning Well, I talk a lot about what inspired me. But I, how, I was 13 years old when Ghana got independence. So at home, all that I heard on the radio was Nkrumah talking about African unity, African integration, the continent of Africa being prosperous and transformed. 
So his vision of Africa was a one Africa. Even at that time, people felt it was utopian. And there was a lot of disagreement whether he was not too, being too ambitious. But the point is, the principles he put on the table and the vision he painted for the continent, that you cannot, the fragmented, small countries, small size, artificial borders, those cannot work to attain the type of development and the human well-being we wanted for our people. So he was inspiring, and that's what inspired me. So if you go by the vision that Nkrumah painted for Africa, yeah, he was disappointed. He had not made much progress in terms of that uh, vision of a one Africa, a prosperous Africa. It's still work in progress. We came out with the Abuja Treaty, for example, uh, Africa Common Market, all those things we are way behind. And the institutions that were set up, the Africa Unity, and now the AU, punch below their weight, by and large. So in that sense, I think, well, now to come to the Africa Free Trade Continental Agreement is very encouraging. I was pleased to see that the leaders came together and reaffirmed these principles, and they've come up with a blueprint to achieve that. And if we can achieve that, in a sense, you know, 54 countries will merge into a single market of over one point, almost 1.3 billion consumers, GDP aggregate of almost close to three uh, trillion. So the prospects are great. Anyway, I know at the start of the millennium, you spent a lot of time working with presidents in Senegal, in South Africa, in Algeria, in Nigeria, who were the the leaders of the NEPAD initiative. They really restored Africa's position in the global community. Regular invitations extended to them to G8 meetings. And Africa had a unified voice on the international stage. When you speak to them now and in your own view, does it disappoint you that Africa's voice internationally, globally, is so limited? Yeah, Marcus, that's a good point. You know, we talked a minute ago about leadership, and let me express that, you know, at my time, I was very fortunate you know, at the ECA, Economic Commission for Africa, at the 10 of the, in the uh, around 2000, I went there in 1995, and around 2000, there was a lot of momentum. And there were some African leaders that would mention who showed real collective leadership. It was fantastic. Because they realized that we needed to speak with one voice. They realized that the continent needed to get its act together and to take initiative. So NEPA, the African peer review mechanism, all those things, and then engaging very actively with the G8 and others on an African-driven agenda for aid effectiveness on the governance issues. It was fantastic. And I was fortunate to see that. And so those were very exciting times and they restored Africa's position in the world. So great. I think since then, we've made progress here and there on the same front, but it's not the same. But the pandemic and COVID and the response of the African leaders has been very encouraging. So in terms of speaking with one voice, I think the AU, you recall that at the very early in the pandemic, we had the African CDC, came in with a coordinated and rapid coordination based upon WHO guidelines, medical supplies platform they set up, the African Union COVID Fund, uh, Ramaphosa and others appointed Ngozi, Kabiruka, and some of my old friends. 
Associate envoys who really put the African agenda on the table, negotiating with the World Bank and others, talking about the debt initiative. So on that score, I think I've been very encouraged by the way some leaders in their own countries have also handled the COVID. There's still a lot of work to be done, even in terms of uh, getting more support for Africa with the vaccine, how are we going to make sure that Africa gets share? So this collective voice is very important. So yeah, we had our challenges in 2000, mid-2000s, even on the issue of HIV AIDS, the way leaders finally came together. So I'm beginning to see some of that also coming up, but we need greater voice now in the, in the issue of climate change, you have um, COPE, Position. Oh, the COP next year in, in Glasgow, yeah, yes. Yeah, what's well, going to be the African position there in terms of mitigation versus adaptation. So on all these issues, we need this collective voice. Now, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to show that. I know that the climate change negotiators have been busy and have met yeah. a couple of times recently, so that's yeah. encouraging. Yeah. So, so I think, and on the debt issue also, I certainly there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. And so far, and even getting the private creditors to come in, or some of the official creditors engaging with the G20. So there's a lot of work to be done there in terms of the common voice. Yes. Yes, I think debt is a, is a really significant issue, obviously. Some of the indicators suggest that debt levels, that levels sort of as they were in 2003 when people like yourself were at the yeah. forefront of negotiating the debt relief and it, for Africa. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a critical issue now. Mm. And getting the private creditors also to be part of the game. So it was happening in Zambia on the debt default. So yeah. and a lot of African countries are getting there. So that's going to be a whole new ball game. And how we engage international community with one voice and get the resources we need. That's going to be a key issue going forward. Before I turn to uh, the work that you're doing at Asset, I'd love to just talk to you about a point that you've, um, you've raised just a little earlier on governance. Governance, yeah. So this year, disappointingly, the Mo Ibrahim Governance Index registered its first decline in overall governance for 10 years since it was founded. Mm. What, what do you put this down to, KY? Well, I think you need to take a bit of a medium-term perspective. I think that the governance story, nice to know the, uh, the Economic Commission for Africa pushed a lot on that. And, ECA then came up with the first African governance report. Uh, we talk about indicators. We came up with the issue of capable governance, capable state. Uh, so I've been involved in this uh, issue. The good news is that governance has improved. Depends what you define by governance. Mm. And even the more Ibrahim indicators, when you look at it, it shows clearly that over the past decade, there's been a blip last year, according to his numbers. Overall, Governance performance has progressed. Uh, now today, over 60% of Africa's population lives in countries where overall governance is better than 2010. So I think we need to do that. Uh, some countries are making progress on human development or economic opportunity, as are making progress on peace and security. But the overall trends has been positive. I think the per public perception of governance has so deteriorated in the last 10 years. And I think part of it is because citizens have high expectations now. It's a good thing. So I differ from country to country. But overall, I think you know, the progress has been, uh, has been positive. 
but it's going bad in some countries. So corrective action is needed. Asset, I know you do a lot of work and partnerships between between government and industry and creating the right enabling environment for industry. It's a central premise of your work on on transformation. And um, I know that you believe passionately that uh, industry and the state should have complementary roles, need to work collaboratively together. There are still too few examples of genuine transformative collaboration between industry and, and governments on the African continent. And still too many business leaders cite political risk, policy uncertainty, regulatory ambiguity as, as real obstacles to their company's abilities to invest at scale. So I wanted to get your views on this and touch a little bit on, on democracy, in fact, because my mm. own experience has been that with election cycles, yeah. investors, companies mm. hold back on making investment decisions. They wait to see. Now, if it's a four-year election cycle, you've got for a period of 12 months in that four year where, where really investment stalls, it's very damaging to, to economic growth. And I wanted to first to get your perspective on, on the quality of, of collaboration between industry and government. And secondly, to, to get a perspective on politics and election cycles and how that plays. From, from Marcus is very loaded. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you've read them, but fundamentally so. So I'm glad you've read them. Don't get me wrong. You, can't, you hit the core of the issue. And at the African Center for Economic Transformation, I think we did this African Transformation Report in 2014. I think that's what these issues came up where we look deep down about transformation. And we and I talked a bit about uh, leadership, smart politics, and all that, which are still mm -hmm. true. But we realize also that the partnership between the public and the private sector, especially in small countries, was fundamental to good economic policies and transformation. So we laid out what we call the complementary roles between the government and the private sector. This comes from also my 40, 50 years experience mm. in this world. And we say governments have a key role to play. They must ensure macroeconomic stability, provide the environment in which the private sector can thrive. They should streamline regulations to encourage and cut red tape. We can also go and say the private sector should spearhead the creation of jobs and are in the best position to upgrade technology and processes. You can go on and also say private sector, public sector partnership is needed, including the education and skills gaps, building infrastructure, so on and so forth. It's fundamental. Without that, you would not be able to move the economy forward or the country forward. Even in certain division, there should be private sector, public sector dialogue where both sides come together and see what needs to be done. Who's so it's so without that. So when you say it's not happening in many countries, I think you're right. We're not having the dialogue. We're not having sort of uh, understanding of what each of us role. The role of the private sector is critical. When you look at uh, investment to GDP ratios in Africa, they are still very low. The statistics show that we, are, we haven't gotten there yet. So I agree with you on the need to do much better. The domestic private sector in particular. Uh, foreign private investment should come in. So on that score, I think, in fact, just about uh, two years ago, 
organization, the African Center for Economic Transformation, we put this on the table. And we had the African Transformation Forum where we had three, President Kufuado, President Kagami, Dangote, some private sector people, and we put this issue on the table. How can we get the private sector and the public sector to work together? And it was a very interesting dialogue. Obviously, there are some good examples in some countries. So what we also try to do sometimes is to do peer learning, bring governments and private sector together from various countries to share experiences. And we have found that also to be a powerful tool for learning from each other. So we need to do more of that. But the fundamental importance of the point is the private sector matters. On mm. the second point on the governance issue, the multi-party democracy. In my book, like I said, transformation is a long-term process. And it turns out that countries where you have stable governments and where you can have predictability in policies, it matters a lot. And the so-called developmental states have been better at that because can come a government that can be in power 10, 15 years. They have a long-term vision they can follow through provided they meet the other uh, criteria of uh, transparency and accountability and all that, in a clear sense. Multi-party democracy passes up and downs. And my own country, Ghana, is a very typical example of where governments come in, policies change. So we have something called the Transformation Index that we measure in African countries. I see countries like Rwanda, countries like Ethiopia, have done very well. And Ghana, back and forth, back and forth. So there's an issue. But still, I think, you know, as I say in the book, it's not a one size fits all. Every African country is different. The history is different. There are some fundamentals that we need to understand as we move forward. Thank you for those insights. You talked about the importance of private capital. Yeah. You made a distinction between foreign and domestic investment, which I'm interested to um, to hear you elaborate a little bit on. And let me put this question to you. It's been my observation that since COVID struck, it's obviously created enormous economic damage to economies, not just in Africa, but all over the world. We talked a little bit about the sort of fragility of the debt sustainability of some nations. You referenced Zambia's default just a little earlier. It seems to me that at this moment in time, all countries, but specifically African countries in precarious debt positions, should be seeking to source more forms of private capital, crowding in more sources of private capital. Instead, I've observed that actually we've seen some pivot to a form of economic nationalism, giving preferences to indigenous businesses, largely because the sort of climate around COVID encouraged that supply chains, value chains had to be brought home because supplies from abroad were challenged because of COVID and, and lack of transportation, lack of mobility. Does it worry you, the, this economic nationalism and the propensity that we've witnessed in the last six months to yeah. advantage local domestic business over international? I think the way I look at it is, uh, okay, what do we need to do? To get out of this present situation we are in and to build back better. That's the challenge you face because the pandemic has had a really huge impact on our economies. Per capita income, GDP is supposed to decline by 5%. 
And overall this year in African countries, per capita income for the first time is going to be negative in the last, over the last 20 years or so. So the economic impact of the pandemic has been very huge. So we need to address the short term, the medium term and the long term. So economic nationalism is not the way to go. I think in the first instance, okay, there were some immediate reactions that you described because of supply chains and all that. But what do we need to do? I think there are four fundamental things. African countries, we need to sort of rebound and get on the growth trajectory. And resource mobilization and management is going to be key. In fact, at ASEP, we've come up with this 10-point action plan, which we sent to many African governments. We even sent it to the AU leadership. Resource mobilization and management, taxation policies, tax GDP ratios are still too low in African countries. We need to do better there. And there are so many things we can do internally ourselves. Uh, we need to improve the effectiveness and transparency of the way we use our own resources. I need to overlapping government initiatives, improve public expenditure management. There's so many things there. And also the business environment and investments are going to be key. And then you're talking about both domestic and private investments. And it's also now that we're talking about digitization, innovation. You need to crowd in venture capital for entrepreneurs. We need to support innovation ecosystems. So there's so much that needs to be done in the short term, medium term, and long term to go back on the growth trajectory and on the transformation agenda. So in a sense, the, the good news is that a lot of African countries that I'm aware of have, have seized on this. If you take Ghana, for example, another country, come up with their own action plans that addresses many of these issues. Uh, working with the World Bank, for example, we brought chief economists of governments or senior advisors of governments in webinars, discussions, what are the issues, what are their action plans, and many of them see the need to move this in this direction. So I think the, the idea is that we should not let the crisis go to waste, as I keep saying, and learn from the past and see what it will take to rebound and to get on the growth trajectory. Looking 10 years from now, that's what we need to be doing. I'm going to move on to one final question before I let you go. When we founded Africa Practice in 2003, profiteering in Africa, running a business that made money, was viewed rather disdainfully. <laughs> um, uh, everyone assumed that we were setting up a charity. Thankfully, for the last decade and more, there's been a, a universal recognition that private sector investment holds one of the critical keys, one of the critical components to economic transformation and poverty reduction in, in just the way that you've elaborated. Yet too many African nations are still very much dependent on donor aid. Sure. You've spent the latter years of your career working very much at, at the intersect of industry and government and trying to get the enabling environment right for economic liftoff in countries with a heavy recognition and onus on you know, an enabling environment for private capital. But you do spend an awful lot of your time also in the international development sector where aid was really the only show in town. Hey, why? it's a personal question, but do you ever regret having spent so much time in that area and not more time with enterprise and trying to find enterprise solutions to development challenges? No, I don't. That's my answer. Not at all. <laughs> 
And, and I told you why. We started this conversation about Nkrumah mm. and my vision of Nkrumah, what Africa needed to do. So I was attracted to the development agenda in, the, in that sense. And my whole career after leaving Ghana as a uh, graduate school, doing my PhD at the University of California, Berkeley, joined the World Bank, those were the issues that were on the African development agenda. So I think that's what attracted me. So no, I don't regret that at all. Of course, I've gone into the private sector. Maybe I've made more money. <laughs> I've more, more work than I am. But that's not the point. That's what drove me. Having said so, I think much of what I did in development allowed me to see what works and what does not work. What we can learn from the past to inform the future. I learned a lot about the importance of partnership. I learned a lot about that aid doesn't work all the time. I learned a lot about what it takes to be ownership and aid effectiveness agenda. I also learned a lot that, no, we cannot depend upon aid. Aid is declining and has, but we need to do more for ourselves. Uh, so the whole issue of economic transformation between the partnership, between the private sector and the public sector, the need for leadership, all these lessons that I've, I, have, I have mentioned uh, it's based upon the experience I have, I've had the opportunities I've had. And that's what's driven me. And I see, you know, I'm an optimist after all these years. And I think the best contribution that I can make, like I say, is to share my experiences. And that's why we do not asset so that the present generation and the future generations. And in my book, I talk about, you know, with some emotion about the future of Africa. And that I see Africa through the, my granddaughters and my grandson's eyes. Where, what would the Africa they'll see 20 years from now? That's what it is about. So we have to know the beginning, we have to learn. So there's a lot of promise, a lot of challenges. Transformation agenda is huge. But if we can learn from the past and draw upon all these lessons that we are now have talked about, I'm, I'm confident that the transformation that we are looking for, certainly not in my lifetime, but in my grandchildren's lifetime, will be realized. That's my hope. Oh, that's a wonderful note on which to end. My, my late stepfather, who died a, a couple of years ago, taught me many things. But one of the things he taught me was, if I want to know what the future holds, read history. On that note, I'm going to plug your book once again, Know the Beginning Well an insider journey through five decades of African development. It's published by African World Press. It came out earlier this year. Buy a copy if you're interested to learn from someone who's really been at the apex of African governance, African development for near on 50 years now, and who can teach us a few lessons or help steer us into the future. Thanks so much, KY, for spending time with us. It was a real pleasure to speak with you as always. Thanks, Marcus. And thanks very much to uh, your colleagues and hope to see you soon. Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.